The JTAC Podcast, episode 68. Send it. I can do that. JTACs. Clearing it hot, making it rain, and bringing the boom boom. Okay. Uh, welcome, everybody, to episode 68 of the JTAC Podcast. I know we've had a little break here. Um, I just want to start off by saying that everybody's views here on the podcast are their own and not that of any organization and that everything that we discuss is um, open source if you want to go and find it on the internet. If um, there is something specific that you have a question about, then feel free to direct message me uh, on Instagram via the um, podcast and obviously I can uh, put links to any social media in the bottom of the bio for the podcast itself. Um, we have Paul today, a good friend of mine who I've met over the last uh, three years while I've been living here in America and uh, told me some interesting stories on some of the events that we've done and hopefully we get into a few of those. So Paul, I appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Neil. I appreciate it. I appreciate the offer to be here. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Um, Paul, just to give everybody else a bit of a, a background and sort of a platform to jump into this with, let's go right back to the beginning for you, sort of where you grew up, where you come from, what the family structure looks like, and sort of where that leads you into school and uh, that part of your life. Right. So I'm originally from upstate New York, a uh, very small town uh, north of Syracuse. Um, my high school graduated approximately 110, my graduating class, so it was very small. Another reason I love Fallon so much, but we'll get into that more. And uh, I have one sibling, a younger brother, and he still lives in upstate New York, and he is a Syracuse police detective. And uh, he's got a few more years before he retires, and he is a, very much into horses and, and farming and stuff like that. So that's his, his end goal is to work a lot with his wife and their equestrian stuff. Um, my father, he's still alive living in upstate New York, uh, close to the town that we uh, grew up in. And uh, he's he's fully retired and hopefully gonna start traveling and doing some stuff to uh, come out to Nevada and see us. So hopefully you get to meet him soon. And my mother passed away last Christmas, um, fairly unexpectedly. And uh, that was pretty hard for the family, but uh, we're, we're through it, you know, it happens to everybody. So that's kind of our take on it. And we celebrated her life. So that's a little bit of where I'm from and, and what I'm about. I, I went to high school. I graduated high school in 1995. I didn't go into the co into college right after because I was, uh, I was a little rambunctious and I didn't, you know, believe that I'd fully make it through college and I'd end up with a bunch of debt. So I immediately uh, enlisted into the Navy. So, I mean, it's interesting, obviously your brother's serving still. Was there anybody else in your family in the service? Did you grow up around that at all? I My father wasn't in the military, but I did grow up with a very military family. My, my dad's brothers, almost all of them were in the military. And his sister's husband, his name is uh, Pat Murphy. He was very instrumental in getting me to, you know, key in on the Navy from a very young age. He was a recruiter. So he would always send me recruiting posters in the mail and every Christmas present was something to do with the Navy. So he was planting the seed at a very young age and 
he uh, he got me, you know, headed down the right path when it came to enlisting and what I should do and where I should go with my career. Yeah, normally a question I throw out there is like, like why particularly the branch that you went into? But I guess uh, it was some brainwashing from a from an early uh, stage there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So taking us, I mean, it, again, another interesting point that you hear on a lot of these podcasts is like the end of high school thing guys are like i'm not really sure where this is going to take me uh, and the recruiting thing kicks in what was the process like for you joining the navy like what's that end of high school to actually ending up like signing on the dotted line how does that process work so when i was in the navy or in the you know final years of high school i was looking at a couple different routes you know i was doing some blacktop construction you know my senior year of high school and I was enjoying it, you know, but I had aspirations of not just being the guy on the ground and, and doing the, you know, the, the blacktop itself. I wanted to own and run the company from a very young age. I had aspirations of owning my own paving company uh, because that was what I was doing. It was what I enjoyed and I wanted to maximize, you know, what, you know, I could potentially do in the future with owning my own business and, and running that. And I realized I was still at a very young age and there was no way I was going to be able to take over a blacktop company and, or start one from the ground up at, at 18 years old. And, and that was, you know, kind of the direction I, you know, I took at that point was to just say, all right, I'm, I'm going to join the military for now and see where this takes me. And, and uh, I was in, in the delayed entry program for about six months before I, before I actually went to boot camp. And I joined while I was still in high school. I signed on the dotted line, you know, my senior year midway through and knew I was going. And, and uh, I did the delayed entry program. So I had about three months after high school, which was about all I needed to realize that I made a good choice to go into the military before I ended up derailing everything. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, in, nine, in 95, I, November 7th of 95, I, I shipped off to Great Lakes. Do you think it changed your attitude towards the way you finished out high school, knowing that you had that? <laughs> it's funny you say that. I had a very interesting high school career, if you will. I was very, I loved high school. I loved going to school. I loved the social aspect. I loved my friends. I loved sports. But I very much did just enough to get through high school. Um, I, I kind of joke, you know, with, with the kids now that I strategically got D's, you know, I worked harder at not doing the work just enough to get through. I was, I was very strategic on, all right, well, if I could do this project and don't do that one, then I save some time over here and I can still get a D and I can make it through high school. So that strategy, you know, planning was even already in my head when I was in high school, I guess. That's funny. Like the amount of effort that you put into that. The amount of planning you probably could have got A's exactly in the yeah. planning phase in the planning phase i got an a yep. in the execution <laughs> phase i got exactly the d i was looking for right absolutely that's that's amazing so you say sports like what what were your uh did you go all like around the whole season or were you a one sport athlete i was a two sport athlete uh i was kind of a three but i didn't play baseball in high school i wrestled that was my big sport and i played football which it was good, but I really enjoyed wrestling because it was like one-on-one -on, -one on the mat. And that was what it, you know, it was one guy going off a winner and the other guy wasn't, you know, you didn't, you didn't, you kind of share it as a team, but it's, it's a huge accomplishment to walk off the mat with your arm up. 
and and I enjoyed that a lot. Um, high, uh, football was great. You know, we won a championship, which everyone loves to talk about, you know, in their high school years. But it, it was fun. I had I think the the football part of it was more a social thing for me. I loved hanging out with my friends every day and going to practice and then going to games and 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 that. But I was never really great at football. I enjoyed it. Um, but I was, I was much better wrestler. And then I played baseball on the side. I love to play softball. I still do these days. I love to play the adult softball leagues and stuff like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I played sports, all the sports all the way through, you know, my junior years and, you know, in the, in the grade school up through middle school. And then when I got to high school, I played up to my 11th grade year. I did not play sports my senior year because I was, I had that mindset of if I don't work, I'm not going to have a car. If I don't work, I'm not going to have gas. And, and, you know, I'm not going into college or the pros to play any sports here. I'm going in the military. I know what I'm, you know, I'm going to be, end up joining the military and baseball and football and wrestling aren't going to help me, but it's going to be nice to have a car when I join. So that was kind of when I went from my part-time job of pumping gas at the corner store uh, to jumping into the paving uh, company that I was talking about earlier and I really enjoyed that because that was the first time that I made a little bit of money and was able to start affording things. And that was a priority to me uh, my senior year. So I stopped playing sports and and I focused on work. Yeah, we we I'm sure we'll get into this in a second. But I remember I I earned so much money before I joined the military. I mean, obviously, your overheads are almost nothing. Yeah. You're, you're still in school. And then I was like running two or three jobs at once. That when I joined the military and I got my first paycheck, I was like, "Oh my god, what, what, did, is, I what, what did I just do?" Is this? But I guess in the long run, looking back, it's easy enough now to look back. But at the time, I was I was shocked. So, yeah, you you were in that delayed entry program, and three months after, where did you? So, where did you go to boot camp? I think you just said it, but I I, I missed it. Yep, I left for boot camp November seventh seventh of ninety five. Yeah, and that was where. Uh, Great Lakes. Okay. And how long does that go on for before uh, you move to a specific? Weeks-ish. It was through the holidays, which was a very, you know, piss poor planning on my part. I should have gone right after the holidays, but that really, that really uh, still sticks with me today after, you know, years in the military, that, that feeling of being away from your family you know, through the holidays, you know, it was good to get that out of the way and understand what I was getting into. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting baptism of fire, like doing that straight off the bat. How do you, did you select what role you were going to do in the military, in the Navy before you started boot camp? I did. Mike, like I said, you know, previously my uncle was a recruiter. So he had gotten me into what they called the, the TAR program, the training administrating reservist. And it is a full-time reservist. And with that program, you go into, I was a jet engine mechanic. So I went in as an AD. So I would actually be at a helicopter squadron, potentially that did not deploy onto boats because there was only like one or two tar ships and a bunch of tar squadrons. And he was pushing to get me more towards the fixed wing aspect of the military and that way I didn't have to go on boats because I joined and I told him, I said, well, I don't, I'll join the Navy, but I don't want to go on boats. He's like, well, we'll put you in the TAR program. And I was like, okay, cool. So I ended up being a TAR. There was only a few of us in boot camp that were 
that were TARS. It's basically a full-time reservist. And at the end of boot camp, I kind of, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I remember having to go do a sea duty screening and I sat down with the doc and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm not going to sea. I'm a TAR. And he's like, son, you joined the Navy. You're going to sea. <laughs> At that point, I wanted to run and get the hell out of the Navy as quick as I could. But that That is a, I mean, I guess from an outsider's perspective, like a non-Navy person or a civilian looking at it, it's like you're joining the Navy. You'd think that that would be, you know, the reason you're doing it is to go to sea. But right. I mean, I've done a very, very short trip on a on a ship, and I was just like, I wasn't about it at all. And I was like, I definitely picked the right job. Um, it wasn't for me. So, what's uh, what's that training pathway look like? Obviously, going through boot camp and then into a specialty. So I went through boot camp. You know, I finished that up early January, and then I I immediately went to right from boot camp down to Millington, Tennessee, and. We did, uh, a, I want to say it was two months of specialty training. And at that time I was an AD, which is a jet engine mechanic. So I went through the AD pipeline. I got, I got raided there in a few months and I got my first squadron out of there, which was HM 14 in, in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. So from, from there, I immediately went right to my squadron. Um, I hadn't. I hadn't had time to take leave or anything. So I went to boot camp, a school right to my squadron before I even, you know, got to, to take a bit of leave and go home. So, and at that time I was married, I actually got married before I joined the Navy a few months before to my first wife. Then we moved uh, out to Virginia, got a small little apartment. And like I had mentioned earlier, my dad's family is very military. So I had another uncle that was stationed there. He had just retired as a master chief. So I went and stayed with him for a little bit and he got us settled in and, and he actually checked me into my first squadron, which was, which was pretty interesting walking in there as a, an E1 with an E9, you know, master chief to the quarter deck. He was, he was like, I don't like the way they checked you. And I'm going to go back with you. Cause I went there and they didn't check me in correctly. So he of course had to re re cage everybody on the quarter deck and which was, which was pretty funny. And I was like, God dang. I think you need to go with me throughout my entire career here. This, this helps. I was going to say, did that did that blow up in your face or did that work out okay? Because it nah, like worked out all right. I, it was a big squadron. So honestly, I don't remember who I checked in with, but I'm sure that they were pretty, they had some fresh comments, you know, behind my back about it, but that didn't uh, interfere with what I was going to, you know, my role in the squadron. So that was good. So what, uh, what's that first squadron? What's the... The role and how long do you stay on that first squadron for? So my first squadron, it was about three and a half to four years. And uh, it was kind of odd. HM-14 is a, is a mine countermeasures helicopter squadron. And they do deploy on boats and they they have a lot, a lot of mine countermeasures gear that they tow behind the helicopter. Um, if anybody's not familiar with the 53 and it's, it was the 53 Echo, it's, a, you know, it's a, a three engine helicopter, one of the biggest in the world. I think it's the second biggest and heavy lift aircraft in the world. And I ended up getting, uh, I had, I went to a division that worked on all of the mine countermeasures gear. So there was a big sled that looked like a pontoon boat that you would pull behind the helicopter and it had a jet engine on it that would power a cable that would then destruct, it would, it would simulate the hull of a ship and it would, it would detonate mines throughout the ocean. 
what a crazy, I mean, who came up with that? I have, yeah, it kind of, it kind of wild, but that stuff has, has been going on for a long time. And it, since there was a mine, there's been mine countermeasures. Yeah. And, just like uh, the technology is, is pretty, pretty old. But when I started working on them, I thought it was brand new. I was like, who the hell could think of this stuff? But uh, yeah, for a helicopter to be pulling a sled that's jet power. I mean, like someone has sat down and like some mastermind that is insane i would have never thought of you know i would have thought of them like dropping stuff or like trying to detonate but like that's crazy what a the 53 i mean just because you mentioned it does do the navy even have that anymore or is it just the marine corps no uh, the navy still has the 53s and okay. they're still flying the echoes and i believe it's hm 15 is the squadron that's still around okay and they're still doing mine countermeasures still mine countermeasures wow I mean, I guess if it works, you know, why, yeah. you know, why change it? I mean, it's still functioning. Um, so what year are you finishing up on that squadron and where is it taking you from there? So it was the end of 99 when I was going to determine whether or not I was going to stay in the Navy or transition to another squadron or, or wherever that may be, you know, on shore duty. And there was a squadron in Norfolk and it was the only uh, six, H-60 squadron that was at the base at the time. And as a young guy, I was, you know, early twenties and I would watch, you know, this 60 fly over and it was the only H 60 in Norfolk. And it's just a sleek looking aircraft, you know, it's just a really, a really, uh, you know, fast looking, you know, maneuverable, just a it visually, I, I was like, Oh my God, that's an awesome looking aircraft. And, and I always wondered where they were going and they, they would fly over our hangar with all of their mini guns hanging off the aircraft and, you know, M240s and, and uh, their Hellfires. And I'm like, what in the hell are they doing? I said, I want to go, I want to go fly in those things, you know, and shoot guns. So at, at the end of my career, HM14, I, I know shit walked out of the squadron one day and followed where that aircraft went because I didn't know much about the military or, you know, anything at that point. And I watched where they were landing and I went over and, and I, and I kind of parked in the squadron's parking lot and I walked up to the quarter deck and, and they had a huge Red Wolf logo on the front of the quarter deck. And it said on the, on the carpet there, it said, if you go down, we're inbound. And I'm like, that is exactly what I want to do. You know, I want to go rescue people. I want to go get people out of a bad situation. And, you know, I want to be in the mix. You know, I want to do something. I, I'm tired of working on mine countermeasures equipment. I'm either I'm either in the game, I'm in the fight, or I'm or I'm going back to paving, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, <laughs> that's good. That's the yin and yang there. That's the either end of the spectrum for sure. I that's amazing. Just like just followed the helicopter. Yep. I mean, that's some desire uh, pulling you in there. How did so what did you do? How did you manipulate that system? Did you rooming yourself into a job? And yeah. did you they really got lucky, you know, going back to the tar situation, you know, my uncle had got me in as a tar. And like I said, there was only a couple of us in boot camp. I walked into the squadron and started talking to him and they're like, well, you can't come here, you know, because we're a tar squadron. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm like, I'm a tar. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yep. So all the personnel at, at uh, the, at the time it was HCS4, the Red Wolves, they were all tar or reservists. And what are the they challenges? had their, their own little gig going on, which I thought was pretty amazing. And, 
And then to hear that they were a TAR squadron and, and there's not that many of them, you know, at that time in the military. So the guy at the quarterdeck was like, well, you're not going to make it here because you're not a TAR. And I was like, well, I just happened to be a TAR. I was in a squadron that was active duty and TAR contingent together. I was one of the very few TARs in the squadron, you know, HM-14. Mm-hmm. So I went, you know, and called my detailer and, and uh, I said, hey, I want to I want to go to the Red Bulls, you know, HCS-4, the squadron that's, you know, flying 60s and they got guns on the aircraft and they're doing stuff. You know, they're if someone goes down, I want to be the guy going and get them out, you know. And uh, he's like, well, I don't think I have any spots available, you know, right now for you there. And I was like, well, I'll wait and I'll give it some time and see if something opens up because it's either this or I'm getting out of the military. And about a week later, I didn't even have to call him. He called me and said, Hey, I got an open spot now. You know, I'll send you over there. So I ended up getting the orders to HCS four and I, I went to the squadron. I checked in and, and, uh, had no idea that that decision at the life you know, at that time of my life was going to change my entire future. Yeah. The military did, but that squadron that changed my future, that changed my entire, you know, career path and what I was going to do in the Navy and what, you know, what I was born to do was walk through that door. Yeah. I love, I love that. I love that there's, I mean, most people, you know, that have done, served in the military or, or in any service, you know, whether that's, police or fire whatever they can tell you that doing it changed their life but almost everybody has a trigger point like a tipping point and and a lot of them are super aggressive like like you were saying where it's well i'm either done with this you know this was great this was an experience or i'm taking this to the next level i I need to be among a like-minded set of individuals right yeah the military and the structure was fabulous but there's something missing there's some mindset or i'm not surrounded with the the similar mindset to what I have yeah, and then absolutely. the people find that tipping point but they don't know they've hit it into, until retrospectively like that was the moment that changed everything so just so I'm sort of unaware of how the US Navy does things but you're you know jet propulsion and you're going across to a squadron what make what puts you into a flying billet how does that sort of change over do you have to force that or does it is it just part of the role no that was something that i had to force so i wasn't in a flying billet at hm14 but i knew when i walked into you know hcs4 that i wanted to fly that was what i was supposed to be doing that's what i felt so when i checked in i got there i you know i went to my my shop which was the jet engine you know the ad shop and they they worked on everything in the aircraft from the gearboxes to the jet engines you know, to the drive shafts, all of that. And I walked in and I said, Hey, this is, this is great, but I want to start flying. What do I have to do to, to go be an air crewman and be a door gunner here? And, and then of course, in that squadron, it's like a pack of hyenas. When you say you want to be an air crewman and start flying there, well, you get every shit job and you have to go get every qualification and, that was about the time that I started being tested, you know, and, and really having to step up and, and learn my own potential at that point. They're like, you, you got to go get qualified. You got to, you got to do this. You got to, you know, get your plane captain, get your CDIs, get into QA. You know, there's so many steps to prove to them 
that I wanted to do that. And that was all I wanted to do. And it was probably about six months, you know, that I was there. I got fully qualified and they were like, oh my God, this guy's stroking, right? So he, he's going places. And, and I walked into ops and, and talked to the opso and the ops chief at the time. And I said, hey guys, I've gotten all the qualifications that you said you wanted to see me get. And I'd like to go to air crew school and, and start flying. And it was kind of funny because, you know, looking back at it now, there, I know everyone was already watching me, you know, to see me prove myself. And they already knew that they were going to send me because after me, you know, years down the road, I already know what I'm going to do with a, with one of my sailors. They knew what they were doing with me. But I walk into op the operations office and they're, it was pretty damn funny, you know, and, and they're like, well, you're going to be able to stand on one foot and tip your head back and touch your nose 10 times. And, you know, they put me through all the, the you know, standard bullshit that you put everybody else through. So it was kind of funny. I look back at that and I was like, fuckers got me good, but you know, they, they had already cut me orders and I was off a few weeks later to air crew school to start flying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's great. I think it's, you, and also it kind of is a, like a mini selection process. It's like, it'll just weed out the person who's just saying it, you know, the guy who's just, exactly. the guy who's just saying it to say it. It's like, well, he won't, the guy who's saying it just to say, it, it's not going to jump through these hoops like to yeah. get, and, and, you know, it, some of those things are prerequisites. Some of them are them just having a good time. Right. Um, but either way they managed to go, okay, well, are we, are we wasting these orders on the right person or not? Right. Which is like you said, later on, you're doing it yourself. Yeah. You know, you're, 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 you're like, well, I, I know that this process works. It's, it worked on me. I'm going to do it to somebody else. Yeah. So you got your orders cut. You forced your way into the into the pipeline. How long's um, how long's that training? Um, the initial air crew training down in Pensacola was, I would say, it was about two months long. It wasn't very very long. I guess as long as you could pass the medical and 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 pass uh, you know, some of the swim stuff down there and and learn a little bit about aviation, you were good to go. So I, I got the training completed and went back to the squadron. And that was at, that was at the point I was able to, you know, get into a helicopter and go fly, which I thought was the most amazing thing in my entire life. And I could not, you know, be in the aircraft enough. It was every if I wasn't on the flight schedule and I was at ops every morning before I was supposed to be to work in the shop downstairs, asking if I could get on the flight schedule if there was a you know, somebody canceled or if there's a way I could squeeze on an aircraft and just sit in there. I had, I wanted nothing more than to fly in a helicopter. That was, that was my, my entire, you know, focus. So, um, does the squadron have an internal training process? Cause obviously it's a specialized unit with mm -hmm. a specialized, um, like role specifically. So when you, obviously you said that training was reasonably short, um, what do you have to do when you come back to a squadron? Yep. So that squadron was in its own wing. So there was only two squadrons, helicopter in that wing. One was HCS-4 on the East Coast, which I was in. The other was HCS-5 on the West Coast. And those two squadrons were the only squadrons in the Navy that were dedicated to soft support. So not only this, you know, was I getting into the CSAR role, which was somewhat of their focus, but... Their, their other 50% of their mission was spec, special operations support. So they would, you know, do everything uh, from, you know, infill, exfill to, you know, spy rig to, you know, 
para jumps to fast rope to everything that you you know you would do with a troop you know with with war fighters you know going to target out of a helicopter we did it and and we did it you know we did it more so than most of the other special operations helicopter units because they were, their role was a little bit different because they had a little bit more streamlined uh, focus on what they were going to do with their aircraft. We were two Navy helicopter squadrons that were just given, you know, like 12 helicopters each to do what we wanted with. So we could basically develop, you know, we, we were able to develop a lot of our own doctrine and how we were going to, you know, fight the aircraft. So our role was very, very, in a very broad scope with, with the training that we had to do because we did anything you could think of with guns and, and infilling troops and exfilling troops. Um, ISR, you know, it was a, a broad scope, but it was a broad scope within a special operations mission. But for the military, you know, the Navy, we were only dedicated to soft support which was kind of micro skills. It was zoomed in on the rest of the military or the rest of the Navy's helicopters were vert rep. They had, you know, a cargo role. So we were the only two squadrons that had that, that really, you know, focused mission of, you know, specific soft support and CSAR. So we developed our own doctrine and our own training pipeline that was very robust. So before, you know, before I was able to go fly a mission on my own, I had probably, uh, I would say, convert, I'm being very conservative here with, you know, saying I had 500,000 rounds, you know, that I had fired throughout my training pipeline before you can even think about doing an actual mission on your own or with a crew. So the, the training, you know, with, with, with the weapon systems that we had was what we focused on. And we had the mini guns, the Gauss 17s and the M240s and, uh, that was all we did. We focused on breaking them down, putting them together, you know, blindfolded the whole nine. If you could, you know, think about what you can do with a, with a weapon system in the aircraft, we, we could do it and, you know, in flight. So it was a very long pipeline. I would say to answer your initial question from the time I was able to start flying in the helicopter to the time I was able to actually go fly a mission, not even as a crew chief, but as just a, a, you know, a gunner to be in the aircraft on a live, a real world mission was probably about three years, two and a half to three years. Wow. Yeah. And obviously it's a high demand platform, specifically obviously where it's based right next door to the people who are going to use it. So how much of that, those three years, do they give you bodies? Because they want it. I mean, they want it. They're trying to get their checks in the box they're trying to get their training they're yeah. trying to develop their ttps yeah. on the platform itself right is there a is there a deliberate uh sort of training together or is it like a yes. high demand from them and a high demand from you and it just works out no we were we and that's we're very flexible i guess is is the way to describe it when when the uh when the teams would come to us and say hey we need to do this we then structured our training around that. And that was very unique about our squadron is, you know, we knew that they needed us for something specific. So then we can tailor our training and put the correct people on that flight to get our training accomplished as well. So while we were there helping them out, get their 
you know, let's say fast rope or repels or spies or, you know, infill, exfil stuff done. We were also getting, we were maximizing our training at the same time where a lot of squadrons will, they won't do that. You know, they're going to say, well, I don't have an aircraft because we are doing our own internal training and we need it for that. We always give up our aircraft for training and we, and we would curtail our own around what the customer wanted. Yeah. I mean, some of the, I mean, best training I've done is because the squadron is literally in a window, if that makes sense. I mean, you'd probably be able to describe it better than me, but they're in a window and they're like, in this window, we must achieve these things, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and they have some things, but they give themselves a, a sort of uh, a left and right of arc with when they need to be achieved. So then when a unit comes in and says, we need to do this thing, they're like, oh, great. Well, we actually needed to do that. We'll just bump that left a bit yeah. and move our solo flights to later on in the month. Right. Um, and then because it's they're getting what they want from it no one's like going oh what are your training objectives what are your training objectives everyone's like yeah. we're getting them like exactly. if, we just go, if we go out and we do this we're getting them i promise you yeah, and and that, and that make, because people are almost not you know it is a supported supporting role but because you're getting what you need everybody's much more punchy about about the training versus being i don't i don't I, you know versus being like oh we're just here to help them you know, yeah, exactly. like, no, we're legit getting something from this. So people right. are like this pushing everybody. Yep. Yeah. Um. So those three years, what is like inside of the aircraft? If you're not even, I, I know you're, we'll, we'll come on the crew chief part of it in a second. Like the guy who's running the, air, the airframe, but are you like another body inside the aircraft? So you've got, you know, the crew flying and then you're the, you're the extra component so training. Yeah, I would be the trainee in the aircraft. So typically you would have, you know, two pilots and they were doing training, cross-training each other. And in the back, what we would typically see is an instructor and then two trainees. So your instructor would sit in the middle of the aircraft and then your trainee would be, you know, usually we're flying guns. So we'd have, you know, a left and a right gun trainee. And, uh, you, you know, we were maximizing our training from the front all the way to the back. And you know and, and getting that stuff done and that that's kind of where our role fit in with with your profession is you know we did a a lot of work with the the jtacs you know out of, out of little creek and and uh especially in the future but at that time we were you know we'd go get our calls and and get our you know stuff done we're like oh, that's awesome but that was one of the biggest contingents that we end up seeing in the future when it came to after 2011 or 9-11 sorry yeah well i was gonna say just sort of going off of your timeline of like 1999 and then saying like three years. I mean, I mean, I guess the question is where were you on that day? That's the first question. Yeah. I was actually working a night shift at the squadron. So I was at home in bed and, you know, I got a phone call and it was, it, it was my ex-wife and she's like, you need to wake up and, you know, watch the news. So I got up, I jumped up and, and watched the news and I was like, oh my God. And immediately, you know, knowing the squadron that I was at and, you know, what had just happened, I was ready to go. I, you know, I think just about anybody that's, you know, forward leaning, you know, is like making the call, where, where do you need me? Where, I'm ready to go. You know, so I called the squadron and I said, hey, you know, I don't know, I saw what's going on. I'll just come in. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll just be there just in case. So, you know, so I did, I, I got up and I drove into the squadron and uh, of course, everybody wants to do something, you know, immediately, but there's a lot of moving parts to all of that. So, 
yeah, we, you know, I was at the squadron watching it all happen in the ready room and, and talking about what we were getting ready to get into. Um, and at that, at the, on that day, we actually had um, an aircraft because we were a reserve unit. We had an aircraft that was doing training up in DC because one of our skippers worked at the Pentagon. And so he was a civilian at the Pentagon, but he was also the skipper of our squadron. And we had an aircraft uh, up at, I think it was uh, AP Hill. And, and uh, you know, of course, after the other aircrafts had hit the Pentagon, that crew that was there, they immediately, uh, you know, jumped, went to the aircraft and, and we were, uh, it was our skipper and, and uh, you know, another pilot, I can't remember who, but, and then a, a couple of, you know, my best, you know, friends are, are there and, and, and ready to go. And they, they spun up the aircraft and they were on the lawn at the. Uh... So they're on the lawn. What do they, I mean, I guess nobody knows. So they're sitting outside the Pentagon and you guys know this satcom off the bird or. What we were in contact with them just by cell phone. Okay. So we had our ops department back at the squadron, you know, that was fired up. And, and of course we had to basically, you know, support them from Norfolk and, uh, and they were doing, uh, medevac stuff off from the Pentagon. And it was kind of funny because there was another army helicopter that was at the airfield alongside ours and there was three of our guys up there that were fully qualified as gunners and crew chiefs and the army guys didn't have a crew so the army was like hey i you know i know we're not cross-trained but if you guys have a you know a crewman that we can take then we can launch so we had a navy crew chief in the back of an army helicopter that was also doing medevac off from the lawn which was pretty that was pretty neat you know at a time like that, you do what you have to to make make the mission happen. Yeah, I mean that alone is there's a book in that on its own, just like in those couple of hours, like how that you know a guy going across to another aircraft and stuff. The it's a hard day to fly as well. Like right. the, the whole the airspace of the whole country, like just shuts down. So to be in anything that flies that day must have been rough. Yeah, we. It actually got a little bit easier after everything was grounded and we were, you know, one of the only aircraft allowed to fly that day. Yeah. Okay. So my sort of my second question that uh, sort of comes out of that, your sort of the timeline that you've given us is what does it change? Cause like you said that you're doing training and to get operationally ready, you're actually right. becoming operationally ready yep. post that. Right. What's your uh, first unit like deployment? Where do they, where do so they push the, you guys out to? Yeah. So our first deployment, it was everything, you know, kind of happens in slow motion, of course, you know, we're, we're ready to get into the fight, but the, the ground, you know, war hadn't started in Iraq. Um, but we were very, uh, we were very forward leaning. So we put ourselves in a position, you know, we were on a, on a boat actually, you know, with our, with our small helo contingent. And, uh, we were just basically like off the coast of, uh, Syria waiting to fly in, you know, waiting for the ground invasion to happen. And, and, and at that time, you know, we were still, we were with a team, uh, on the, we were on the LaSalle and the Nashville, we kind of cross-decked a couple times, 
but we were, we were embedded with a team there and we were all ready to go and just waiting for the word. And at that point, we basically had a very, uh, a very great opportunity for me to get fully qualified very fast <laughs> right? because we could, we could do nothing but train. And, uh, so we were sitting there just waiting for, you know, a few months. So that was when my training really, really ramped up and, and, uh, I was able to get, you know, most of my qualifications knocked out on that, on that deployment. And, uh, we never got the okay to actually go in. We were going to come in from the north in, into Baghdad and our sister squadron, HCS-5, they were down in, uh, I think they were in Qatar waiting to come north. And and they actually got the call. We didn't because we didn't get the airspace to fly over to get into Iraq. So our sister squadron went into Baghdad and we ended up going home. So we took all of our aircraft and went back to Norfolk which was very frustrating for all of us. Yeah. Because we thought it was going to be over in a month or two. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, hindsight is everything, but uh, yeah, that is, that's going to be frustrating. It's wild though, because at that point, you know, the checkbook just goes away kind of thing. Right. It's just like the budget is whatever it is. It's like fly, do whatever you need to do, be ready. And uh, that kind of thing. I kind of had this thought a moment ago and I, I I forgot to ask you, and I don't want to do like a whole history thing, but the history of like, I guess your squadrons is, is interesting. And what you were saying about, you know, writing your own uh, sort of training um, schedule and how that builds out. But when I was coming over here and I, I was going to work uh, with the teams, I sort of started listening to some books and some podcasts and stuff about like their history and about sea float uh, and mm -hmm. the development of that. And then the, you know, the sea wolf um, squadron that was on there who yeah. like where literally guys were, you know, welding scaffolding poles yeah. onto their helicopters yeah. um, so that they could have rockets and that kind of stuff. Yep. So, and I get, Oh, sorry. I guess the question is without us, you know, do it. We, I mean, we can come back and around and do the, the history of, of it as a separate thing because that would be super fun anyway. Right. But kind of like how the birth of those squadrons and how that mentality has stayed in them. Can you sort of talk to that? I know that's not yeah. a great question. but Yeah. No, it is actually that the Red Wolves were descendants of the Sea Wolves. So the Sea Wolves, you know, they, they stood up their squadron in Vietnam and then they they also decommissioned it in Vietnam. And a quick tidbit about that, the Sea Wolves after Vietnam, and actually still to this day, are the most decorated uh, Navy squadron in history. Then that that's fixed wing, rotary wing, uh, across the gamut. Um, they were uh, they're 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 quite the unit, and I'm still very involved with them today. I go to their reunions and actually uh, I know a couple here in, in Fallon. And uh, it's pretty interesting listening to that. I listened to a story yesterday about a, a Seawolf pilot, you know, that he was actually one of the first OICs that stood up the squadron in, in Vietnam. So yeah, going from the Seawolves writing their own doctrine, they they were the, the our forefathers when it comes to gunnery. And they used to hang, you know, M60s off a of bungee cord in this in the aircraft and and that all developed from there into what we ended up having, which we thought at that time was high tech with 
you know, mounted guns. But the, yeah, the Seawolves decommissioned in, in Vietnam. And then it was another squadron, which was HAL-4 that stood up in Norfolk, which was the Huey squadron in the same hangar that the Red Wolves were in. When they got rid of the Huey airframe, then we became HCS-4. So we're direct descendants of, of the Seawolves. Yeah, I mean, I think it's they're such cool stories. And, I, and I'm glad that the mindset stayed that way, that, you know, you've got, like you said, even though it seems like a narrow mission set supporting a specific kind of operation, the ability um, to have a wide sort of uh, look at that and do your own thing and make sure you're supporting it in the right way is important. Right. Um, so you come home and I'm kind of sort of losing track of the the year we're in probably about two, 2003 2005 time frame now yeah right, yeah right around 2003 is when it really kicked off yeah so i just i guess without jumping forward too far how does the training change how does the mindset and the um like i said you know the 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 checkbook is gone it's like yeah, whatever you yeah. whatever you need to do get it get it done how does the training at home change and how does the mindset towards operations change? It obviously got very serious. You know, we, we were a bunch of dudes with helicopters and guns, you know, before. So we would go do a deployment. We would take the aircraft somewhere and we'd go shoot guns and then we'd party all night. Um, this really hyper-focused us on, you know, into actually making every minute in the aircraft, every minute on the ground count towards what we were getting ready to go do. So we got hyper-focused on guns. We got hyper-focused on, you know, our, our employing the entire weapon system, meaning the aircraft, you know, in that soft role, because we were, we definitely transitioned from that CSAR role into direct support for special operations missions. The I mean, you say you came home. What was the, did they, did they push you back to Iraq or did you go to the Afghanistan mission set? No, we, we got back home. And by that time I was ready to do my check ride. I was, you know, fully qualified. Yeah. Our sister squadron was in Iraq and they had done about six months there. And some of us were rotating in to help them. But that squadron was like, Hey, we're, you know, we're getting a little strung out. So we're going to come home and, and, HCS-4 is going to deploy. So we kind of did a transition where we took four helicopters. And uh, in 2003, we took a, you know, our squadron over there. And I think I got there around the end of February, beginning of March of 2003. And it was kind of a, for me, it was an exciting time. Of course, we, we, were got in, we finally got in the fight, you know, after all this training and all these years of, you know, hurry up and wait. You know, and here we are, you know, now we're in Baghdad and and we're getting ready to do the mission. Well, we get to Baghdad and our two helicopter, you know, soft support unit didn't quite understand that there is a whole entire joint special operations command that directs all of this, <laughs> which is, you know, that's that's you know, big brother right there, right? Well we show up with our helicopters and we're working with the team guys and JSOC is like, what are you guys doing? They're like, if you want to do this stuff, you have to go through us. 
And we're like, no, we're Navy. We're working with the team guys. We're going to go do, we're going to do, you know, go do missions. And they're like, well, that's good. It's cute that you think that, but that's not how this happens, you know? So we had at that point to integrate in with, you know, the joint special operations air component at the time it was a joint special operations air component, uh, AP Arabian Peninsula, I believe. And we had to prove ourselves to the soft world that the Navy helicopters that were deployed here to do soft missions could, you know, execute this mission set and at a very high level um, because it was all, you know, night flying and infill, exfill, call for fire and, uh, you know, ISR. And that was all we ever did. You know, we didn't have any other mission sets, so we were damn good at it. And we had a, a very capable platform because we had a ton of fuel. We could stay on a target for the entire mission without having to go loiter, you know, or refuel or anything like that. So we also had a very capable FLIR system on the aircraft. So we were able to stand off outside that, you know, the audible, you know, range of a helicopter for somebody on the ground and still provide that, you know, ISR and uh, direct help direct a mission from, from the aircraft when it came to, you know, what the ground elements were, were needing. Um, and that was about the time that UAVs were coming online. So we were, you know, we were trying to integrate with the predators and all of that. There wasn't that many at the time. So our, our systems were very sought after, after everybody figured out who we were, what we were capable of and what we could do. Um, we became, we became integrated with the air force, uh, 53s there, the Mongis that was their soft platform. And then, and also, uh, the Army's 160th. So it was, it, we ended up being pulled into to that unit. So when we were in Iraq, we actually worked for the Air Force. We had an Air Force, you know, commander that, that ran the 160th aircraft, um, the Navy aircraft, and then the Air Force aircraft. We were basically, uh, we, we would form our own squadron when we were over in Iraq. Okay. How many times did you guys do that rotation? We, we ended up rotating one more time with HCS-5, our sister squadron. And at that point, we realized that this wasn't going away for a while. So all we ended up doing was giving our word that we would keep four aircraft there. Okay. So we then, at that point, basically maintained four aircraft in country. And the squadron would send personnel from each squadron to keep that contingent manned. And we ended up never we went in in 2003 and jumping forward a lot but we never we did not leave uh iraq until 2010 until the end of war what do you so we were constantly deployed in iraq what do you think the biggest change that you i mean obviously there's a huge change there at the start where you turn around you're like you're not going to in, operate independently um so go i mean i guess there's two parts yeah. to that one it's like Hey, what's it got? What's it feel like going from operating as a, that smaller element to have being part of a bigger machine? And then, secondly, like what was the biggest change that you saw in your rotations each time uh, going in and out? Well, first, I would say after you know, it took a little bit to prove ourselves to uh, you know to JSOC, but after we did, they realized how valuable they that we were, and of course you know, you need, we need more aircraft no matter what. So if we're capable, 
and, and we're ready to do the mission, they what they wanted us to do it. So we started getting fed um, missions that we typically would not, you know, have been, you know, known about or involved with. So we started basically in a rotation with, you know, the army and, and the air force and on, all right, who's, who's next? This one, this contingent's getting this mission. And then we ended up integrating so well that we would fly a mission with the army and the air force in the same flight. We would hit the same target at the same time. And depending on how many, you know, people we could fit in a 53, they would, we'd put the extra in the 60. We were, we were one squadron over there for, for the, I would say the entirety of it, it was growing pains at the beginning, but we integrated really well. So we started getting a lot of those higher level missions. You know, we did, you know, the same hits, you know, going to HVTs as the army or the air force. And, and, uh, that, that, at that point, that's when it really started to, uh, you know, catch the eye of like the military, the Navy back in the States, Mm -hmm. you know, Donald Rumsfeld came over and he was like, what the hell is this Navy squadron doing here? You know, (laughs) it was kind of funny, but that was, uh, that was kind of the direction that the squadron took into getting, you know, fully engulfed in, into the special operations world. Yeah. Did, I mean, did that make, basically make that become your command structure at home as well? Did that, would, did you feel like you were then when you came home, you were still doing the same mission sets or was it very much back to your own inter-house sort of training? No, we changed all of our mission planning processes. And we learned a lot, you know, we, we, we adapted what the 160th was using for mission planning, to be honest, because it worked, you know, we weren't, we weren't going to sit there and say, Hey, we, uh, ours are better. You know, Mm -hmm. we're going to keep using ours. We had to integrate and, and adapt so that we could fly, you know, in a formation with them, you know, so we were, we were flying all the same tactics and TTPs, you know, that, that they were. Um, the only the, the big advantage that we had over the 160th was we had a lot of fuel. We couldn't carry as many troops, but we could take three aircraft and you know get everybody on deck that that the you know the ground force commander needed to be on a hit maybe with one extra aircraft. But then we could actually we could stay on target. So where we ended up you know really standing out when it came to those three different you know helicopter units. Um, was we could stay on target. So the 160th would do an infill and then they'd leave. So we would do an infill and then we would actually provide ISR, close air support and battlefield mobility. And that was huge because now the ground units had, you know, two or three helicopters and a stack above them with with an AC-130. And we were unstoppable at that point. Yeah. So obviously you guys had already trained sort of with the teams and stuff like that and yeah. probably developed your own communication sort of style with them. What do you think in the generations, like going from, like you said, being uh, specifically running that kind of mission set to being in a larger formation, but being staying on station, what sort of did was, if there was any change, what kind of communication and who specifically were you communicating with? from the beginning, like 2003, you know, through to, you know, the later 2000s right. into the double digits. 
Yeah, we would. So our, our the comm flow was was pretty interesting, you know, because we had we had four radios in the aircraft, and we were able to actually, you know, take the communications from the ground and transmit what's going on over SATCOM from our aircraft. Because a lot of time, as you know, it's hard to get SATCOM on the ground. It, it, may, it may be easier nowadays, but you know, I'm, I'm retired, but. You know, back then we were one of the only you know platforms that could communicate you know with SATCOM back to wherever we needed to. So we were get really feeding you know uh, the 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 talk, the information that that they needed to fully make a decision on what we were going to do with the mission. Um, we were unique to like I said, being able to stay on station and and talk with the ground you know force commander and also the JTAC. So. I would say a typical mission set would be where the ground force commander would be intercommunicating with with all of the ground element, and then you would have direct the JTAC would be in direct contact with us. So where where we weren't actually you know communicating with the JTAC just to do call for fire, we were we were communicating with the JTAC to do you know battlefield mobility. We were chasing squirters. If somebody exited the target, we would have an aircraft with a. Uh, with a quick reaction force airborne with us. So we'd have two or three of the uh, team guys with whatever element we're using in an aircraft ready to prosecute squirters as they left the target. So we were able to, uh, you know, help with that, you know, cause you, you'd go in the front door and out the back door they'd go. And man, at, at that point we loved it cause it was game on for us. So we got, we, we enjoyed chasing the squirters and, and we would at the time we called it a half. We'd have the, the the half on on board, and and that aircraft would then kiss off, and and they would start chasing the squirters, and we basically we'd just let them run until they got tired, and then we land next to them and, and uh, back them up. Yeah, that like that eagle like VCP or that like that that sort of cut off group thing, that TDP became like so valuable to everybody, and like that's another thing is like trying to explain. I mean, I guess it people understood it maybe five, six years ago, but that understanding that a JTAC's responsibility goes well beyond like that terminal attack control, right. you know, he, that primary uh, conduit for all things that are operating in, in the airspace, where, no matter what they're doing, whether it's ISR strike or, or even, you know, providing aerial cutoffs or, you know, squirter control yep. is huge. And, you know, when you go through your basic course and you come out the other end of it, it's like a baptism of fire because the only thing you've been taught to do as a JTAC is, you know, execute attacks. And then right. somebody turns around to you and goes, all right, by the way, that's great that you know that, but now you need to do all these these other hundred yeah. other roles. And everybody wants to talk to you through this like one uh, communications method. And you need to be able to sort of manage that manpower somehow. Um. What do you think, I guess, like picking out all those deployments and all that training, is there like a favorite story that like you were just saying that you were speaking to somebody yesterday about one of their stories, but is there a favorite story or the funniest story that like always comes back? It's one that you use, you know, your uh, your go-to story of something that went completely wrong or completely right for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, there's, there's I mean, the one, this was a simple logistics run, you know, we had left Baghdad and we were stationed now up in Balad and uh, you know, we had been flying missions every night and we had a logistics run, just kind of moving some people and cargo around 
So we landed down in Baghdad and at the time, Super Troopers was, you know, very popular. So we, you know, of course, you know, you had nothing better to do, but sit and watch Super Troopers every night and laugh with all your buds, you know, while you're on deployment. So we landed down in, in, in Baghdad at, uh, I think the LZ was Dagger and we're just sitting there bullshit and we had a great crew, a bunch of good, you know, the, four of the best friends you could ever have in a helicopter with you, you know? And I can't remember exactly what happened, but we lost one of our passengers and, and the other aircraft was trying to land. And they're like, there's somebody running through the middle of the LZ. And it was probably the passenger that I let out of the aircraft because as soon as you hit the deck, they just take off, you know, and it's like, whatever, they're gone. I don't know where they went. Well, they were in the middle of the LZ. The other aircraft couldn't land. So they were trying to get us to reposition, but I was trying to chase the other, the passenger that was gone. I'm trying to gather him back up and they wanted us to reposition, but the aircraft, we couldn't reposition because I wasn't in the aircraft. So they can't take off without me, you know, and it was pretty damn funny. I, I run back to the aircraft and I'm like, fuck, he's gone. I don't know where he went. And they're like, well, Dash 2 is trying to land. And I hear him on the radio. They're like, you guys need to move over. And our pilot, uh, his call sign was Fatal, Fat Ass Al. He's like, I can't pull over. We're already pulled over. I can't pull over anymore. <laughs> One of the best lines from Super Troopers. And at that point, our entire aircraft started laughing so hard that we rendered the aircraft, you know, unable to do anything. We were laughing uncontrollably and we couldn't fly the aircraft. And it was pretty, we sat there for five minutes, basically turned dash two off and said, they can go figure it out. And, Cause we can't fly the aircraft because we're all laughing so much. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess there's a couple of things there. There's no accounting for ground guys. They'll just, uh, you know, they'll ruin any good plan you've got going on. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, yeah, I don't know. I could just hear the Benny Hill music, you know, playing as you're like running around the, the LZ trying to find a guy in the dust. Oh yeah, that's exactly what it is. Oh my goodness, the amount of yeah. times at night that I've done a head count and you're like 14, where's number 15? And you're oh. just like you're back off the back and you're in a brownout. Yeah, on MVGs and you're like, what the like? Why would you not get on the aircraft or where the hell? Oh, that was I the worst. Trying to count everybody in the back of the aircraft. At the brownouts, I mean, the 60s not, I mean, it's bad, but it's not bad. Like the CV-22s, they are a monster. Like oh, even, imagine. even the 53s, I mean, they're bad when they land, but once they're landing, they can like pitch whatever way they pitch. They can get rid of the brownout. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the, in the 22s, they just can't, they just, just brown you, brown you, brown you, brown you. So like yeah. it's, you know, hand on shoulder trying to get into the back you lose one guy it's like you almost have to like send everybody away let yeah. the dust settle try again kind you of thing head count. oh right. disgusting and you you come home and you're just like brown everywhere but like that didn't have something covered up you yeah. just because you've been sweating all night or whatever you're just a dirty dirty brown individual so god only knows what the crewmen used to say about us after they left you know they were like these idiots like think they're professionals <laughs> i don't know <laughs> look like a bunch of clowns like yeah, you get off the like back and, Hill, but that's oh right. god falling i i fell out of the back of aircraft like you know the doors open and you think you know where the floor is you put your foot down and you just like straight mvgs to the face and yep. like 
crewman's just like gives you a thumbs up and they pull in power and they go away and i'm sure that the amount of stories that people tell about like guys doing dumb stuff and it's like these guys are so dumb like, <laughs> you're like I'm, we're, honestly we're not trying to be we're just trying to just trying to get on and off the aircraft right. like, if we had repositioned better then you wouldn't have fallen there, there uh, you go yeah i'm like the floor is definitely there and then all of a sudden it isn't yeah i understand that yeah if um if you were to i guess if you were to speak to your younger self or somebody that was you know going to have the opportunity to have the same career as you which would probably be difficult i guess in this day and age it's kind of sad for these young guys joining up not that mm -hmm. you know anybody wishes war on anybody but you know it's a wonderful time to operate right. when you know you're going to be busy and you're going to get to do the things that you train to do but you're going to speak to a younger version of yourself what kind of like two to three key things would you say to that young man you know coming out of boot camp or whatever how to get it done and do it better maybe i would say if i have, if i was able to talk to my young self again I, I would do it over you know exactly as i did it i would not i would never change anything i would definitely tell myself to to get ready because you're going to be put into some of the most ridiculous situations that you could ever imagine but it's hard to tell your young self that because you have to experience it. You don't believe it until it's over. And then you're like, holy shit, that really just happened, you know? Yeah. But I would be, I would tell myself, be ready, you know, just, just be ready because you're about to experience some stuff that you would never ever imagine you wouldn't be able to experience. Um, on the second hand, I think that I would tell myself because I, I wanted to be confident in myself. I thought I was a confident person, but it really didn't start, you know, hitting me until even after, you know, I, I had deployed, I ended up deploying to Iraq eight times, but I would say after the third or fourth time, I, I really gained confidence in myself and I wish I had gained confidence, you know, maybe a little bit earlier mm -hmm. um, because I think I had more potential even at a younger age that I didn't realize I had in me. So that's what I try to push in my kids today you know is is you have more potential than you think you do and you're not going to realize it until you experience it and then you then you stop and look back at it and 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 tell yourself holy cow I, I didn't realize I'd ever be able to meet that potential so I think I would try to tell myself to to push myself a little bit harder and expect higher things out of myself at a younger age because I didn't I didn't realize the kind of potential that I would have at an early age. Yeah. To do stuff. It's interesting. I mention it almost on maybe every podcast, but it definitely it's pushed on the, you know, on the website and through the brand. But like ego is important. Like I think people get it, get it wrong where they think that ego, um, you know, isn't, can be a negative and it can be. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not saying that you should be like so engrossed in yourself that you lose your growth mindset. Obviously you've got to maintain a growth mindset where yes, I can learn. Yes, I can change. Right. I, I, I can't do this yet. Um, but ego is also important. Like, you know, the fake it till you make it kind of mindset. It's right. like, I, I've yeah. been given the tools and I know that I'm good at this. Um, I've proved that I'm good at this. So now I need to live up to that expectation you know there's a measurement that i've drawn a line 
right. I've got to, I've got to that's my baseline minimum now um and you've got to have a good enough belief which I think is like the other side of the sword of ego it's like mm-hmm. you've got to play the part you know you've got to when somebody looks at you and like you know someone's coming to the aircraft and you're the the crew chief and it's stuff like that you got to play that part and you got to right. play it to the the level of your ability yeah, so yeah. when I come up there you know you don't you don't want to be like you ask the crew chief a question you expect him to like answer it in like a, a very yeah. uh, straight and forthright manner manner and I think young people I'd say the same thing to myself it's like ego's a good thing like right just, just don't let it overflow to the point where you upset people but you need to live up to the expectation that's expected of you absolutely um while maintaining a growth mindset in the background but when you're operating just operate get it done kind of thing yeah. um and then you know depending where you are in that pyramid of people you know you got to lean on other people's expertise again being open enough to be like I got asked a question. I don't know the answer, or I know how to do this, but I need the support of others. You know, we're stronger together than as a single entity. Right, I know how. Absolutely. I know my strength is this, and I know that I need support uh, through through this thing. So yeah, I I know exactly what you're saying. Like it's like you look back and you realize how good you were, and you're like, damn, I wish I knew at the time how good I I was, because it would have made me better to to have. Um, to realize right. that in myself um so like you said you deployed nine times which is just you know aggressively <laughs> insane when you think about the amount of years that you did that in uh, and what that does to you you know as one as a human being and two mm-hmm. is um you've mentioned at the very beginning about family and being away from the holidays um what and again we can come back around to this at some other other point but what ended up bringing you to Fallon? So I was getting back to being a tar real quick. Mm. The two units as a helicopter door gunner, HCS4, HCS5, you could only be there as a tar. So our sister squadron was also, you know, the tar unit. So I would transfer back and forth between the two squadrons. So I got very lucky being able to only go to the squadrons that were deployed you know, in a, in the actual combat zone. And that was very, you know, for me, it was very unique and, and I loved it. I didn't want to do anything else, you know, and it was, I could not, I couldn't stay out of, I w- it's, it's hard to say, you might understand it, but I was, if there was something happening overseas and I was home, I wanted to be there. I was like, Oh God damn it. I missed it. Or, you know, we'd ball up an aircraft over there and I'm like, shit, I wish I was there. Cause I might've been able to help stop it, you know? So you always had, you, I always wanted to be in the fight. You know, it was good to come home, but after about a week or two, I was ready to get back in it. So our squadron was kind of unique where you could go back, you know? And I, I, if we ever needed, you know, a body over there, I was the first one in line going, I'm in, put me back in. So I ended up doing, and that was nine I mean, I've deployed, you know, I can even know hundreds of times with the military, but nine times into Iraq, eight times into Iraq, 10 times total after we moved down to the UAE, um, still supporting the same mission, but we were out of Iraq um, after it kind of, it wound down. Um, yeah, I think that, 
that definitely i mean that, that strikes home with me i know it strikes home with everybody it's just like i deliberately would maneuver myself around to redeploy right i mean i know the people around me and my family around me would have said yeah you, you know it was obvious yeah. that you did that yeah. you would so, i would i'd skip from squadron to squadron yeah i'd be on, I'd be on the list to cover people's r and r anything yeah. i could do to get yeah. back in the country yeah you know, I mean, i'd be doing it i kind of joked at one point i'm like i'm a warmonger I don't, I want it. I want to be in there. I want to be doing it. So along with all, after all of those deployments, I had gained, uh, you know, a huge amount of tactical experience, you know, and how, how to employ an aircraft, you know, in a, in a combat zone that the, the regular Navy had not done at all. And they had not even been exposed to it. So I ended up trying, you know, as I gained, you know, rank in the military and, ex, you know, kind of some experience along with that, with the tactics side, my squadron asked me to come up to Fallon to go through the weapons and tactics instructor course, which is, uh, it's, it's used to be Swiddy. It's now called Seawolf after HAL 3. Um, so I, I got in the course, which is, it's, it's the helicopter course that Top Gun does for the jets. It's in the same building, other side of the building. You know, that's that's the helicopter side. But I got to go through that course, through the WTI course. And I was, I think I was, I had graduated and, and gone back to the squadron. And I was, I had the ability to come up on a shore duty. And this was back in 2000. Uh, I think I went through the course in 2009. 2010, we were kind of, things were winding down in Iraq. And we were we were moving to you to the UAE. Um, they had asked me, you know, to come back up to Fallon as an instructor at NSOC. So that was in I think I transferred back up here in 2010 to Fallon, and I was uh, I went through the instructor training course and then became an instructor at at Swiddy or Seawolf. Yeah, so it, it's pretty, like you're saying, it's pretty much the same. They do the, the Top Gun thing where you're actually, the intention is for you to be a unit instructor, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, come up here, do the training, and go back. And it's more of a an train-the-trainer cl class, right? It's teaching you how to be an instructor, use right. what you know to go back and teach. Yep, so and after you did that, you rotated back to the squadron, right? Yeah, I did the I did the course and then rotated back to the squadron. At that point, you're you know you're like a level uh, four or five, and it's probably changed now. That, but you're the highest level tactical instructor. So basically, I can make instructors at the squadron level. Okay, that's what that course does. And then I went through the course, and through the whole course, I was gave giving my experiences. You know, from actual combat, I was the only. I was the only, you know, student in the class of 25 or 30 that had actual combat experience. Is that because the rest of them are coming from the other Navy squadrons and right. you're specifically coming off the, the TAR squadron? Yeah. Yeah. They hadn't, none, none of them, they've been over on a boat, you know, to the Middle East, you know, yeah. but there, there was nobody there that had actually done, you know, high level, you know, high profile missions, you know, with, with multiple aircraft to a target, you know, to, you know, taking down HVTs and stuff like that. Yeah. So I was given some of my experiences to them during the course and, and it, it, you know, I enjoyed it. I liked being able to help teach 
you know, and, and give my experiences to the class and, and hopefully try to redirect it, you know, to where this is, this is more realistic. This is what we're doing right now. There's a mission going on in, you know, country using these tactics, you know, and, and I was able to, uh, you know, make it a little bit more realistic, I think, you know, during the school, during the course. And then, then I got asked to come back up as an instructor. So when I got, I, I transferred, I accepted, I and I said, I'll come back up and, you know, be an instructor here. And as soon as I checked in the skipper at the time, Bischoff, he was like, you're, you know, you're the head guy, you're running this mission. You come in and it's like, well, I mean, I guess two things, you're um, a victim of your own sort of success. I know what happens to a lot of guys is they, they do a lot of deployments. They go on a, an instructor clock car course with the intention of being in the unit and then they they're spotted and it's like then that's it that's now what that's now the job they want for you because they want to ring you for everything you're worth sort yeah. of what they could like they call it paying it back but like i don't really know how you pay back your combat service by being an instructor but i know i know what i know what they're saying it's kind of like all right and, uh, and it is a compliment obviously i I'm, so it's a massive compliment to be an instructor and it's even more of a compliment to be a schoolhouse instructor so mm. i don't want to take that away from them but i always think the way they sell it is very strange it's like yeah you're going to pay back you're like i don't i feel like you're definitely the the, the winner here but i guess the military is always the winner so yeah so you get the compliment you sent to the school and you arrive there and the head of the school he turns around and says to you well i'm glad you have all this experience let's make this program reflect that Right. Yep. So I got back as an instructor and, and the skipper that was there when I was a student had said, I'm, I'm giving you infer an, an enlisted guy to be the director of an entire mission with aircraft, you know, it was not typical up there, mm -hmm. but he gave me the, he gave me the, the mission set. And it was at the time it was called convoy escort. So it gave me the, it gave me the, you know, the foundation to, to re-employ everything that I had to do that mission in a realistic way. So I had the ranges, I had the helicopters, I, you know, and I reconfigured everything like it was real world. So after, you know, my time there, I was able to structure Fallon as if it was, you know, an actual combat zone and use Dixie Valley and and you would, you would, I would actually give them a mission drop, like a TST, like we would typically get, and they would have to plan it back in Fallon, and they would then meet me at the FOB, and uh, and then we would go execute the mission, and we would do a gaff with uh, with overhead, you know, order control and ISR and call for fire, you know, cast platform, and it was it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it, you know, and being able to put the realistic touch on everything was big. You know, I, I actually gave them products, you know, that mirrored what you would see in country, but, but mirrored into Fallon, I guess. So yeah. I would set up a ROS and I would do it in a, in a air, in a, a platform that we didn't know until we went into Iraq, you know, you would get a, a pie chart, you know, around a, a, an airfield that was lettered, you know, in sections and, and we had never seen that before, you know, so I reincorporated that into Fallon and 
And then I would close them off. You know, the aircraft would, would leave Fallon and I'm sitting on deck because I'd stay out in the field for three days to do this. And it was pretty awesome because I'd have them check in with me. And then I'd close a part of the pie chart, you know, because of indirect fire or whatever. And then that would it would change their whole landing scheme. And that was what happened in, in the real world, you know. Yeah. The target would move. You know, we, we would gaff in and we'd get hit by an IED. And we actually had ordinance that, that would... Uh, you know, show the explosions and everything. And, and then we're making them land next to the, uh, where the IED went off. So a new mission would pop up in the middle of their primary mission. And then they'd have to redirect aircraft to, to execute, you know, the injured person and pick them up where they hadn't planned on landing and get them back to the FOB or wherever they needed to go. Then they'd have to figure out how to continue the mission with an aircraft that was, you know, taken, somebody that's injured back to the fob that would be, you know, maybe 15 minutes away. Now, what do you do? Are you a single aircraft? You know, do you stick together and leave the gaff alone or do you split up the flight? And a lot of that stuff was, was brand new to these guys. So it, and, and that was the stuff that we experienced that we had never expected when we got in country and, and how to uh, be very, very flexible and adaptable to the mission. Yeah, I love I love that like that realism. I think one of the wonderful things about this sort of specific uh, range complex that they have here is like it literally is. It couldn't mirror the places that we were operating any better seasonally as well. Like the weather here, um, the you know the environmentals and everything, and for you to come back, and, you know, and to like push. Because that's great for people, you know, to see those products right. and and to to get that level of realism, so that it's not a surprise. You know, you're you're removing that level of sort of ambush for them mm -hmm. when when they arrive in. It's not like oh, I've never seen this before. And when we started coming here um, and working with the helos in here, the, all that was already in place. So I came after. Mm -hmm. um, you'd got that going because yeah. we'd arrive in and we'd issue our products and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, you know, there's questions, but they're not the kind of, they're the standard kind of question that you'd be expecting from a mission planning conference. Right. It wouldn't be like, I have no idea what this, this picture means. It'd be like, what about this? What about that? What yeah. about this contingency? What about, and like, they were all the, the questions that you would be expecting from crews. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was it was obviously working because by the time I started coming out here, those guys were like on it when it came to the product that we would hand them. Right. It wasn't like a surprise. Yeah. Um, they weren't asking about what we would consider, you know, I guess you and I would consider basics because it is what we got used to doing. Yeah. Had transferred well uh, into the pipeline over here. So, did you rem did you finish out your career here? I did. I finished out at Navy SAR, the Longhorns. Okay. But after my tour up here at NSOC, I went back to the squadron to 84. Okay. And I redeployed again over to UAE. And uh, that was an operational mission, which was good. We weren't in Iraq, but we were doing some other stuff in the Middle East. That was when Yemen was kicking off. So okay. we did some traveling around there, which was, it, it was new, you know, crossing lines, you know, different country lines with a helicopter. Yeah. And it was very, very, very interesting. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and and water, which I know obviously in the Navy you're supposed to be used to, but yeah. uh, considering we operated in, 
not landlocked countries, all of them, but you know what I'm saying? Like mm -hmm. you're crossing desert and then all of a sudden now you're actually crossing water and what the, the implications of that. I was found that um, I was, every time we flew across water, I was just like, I didn't like it. I didn't like, I, don't, I still don't, I don't, I don't like flying over water and didn't like it in the military. And thankfully I didn't have to do too much of it. Yeah. Did you get your, uh, pilot's license while still serving or did you was that something that you decided to do afterwards no it was after so i you know i i came back up to the longhorns to station sar after i you know finished my tour at 84 and it was this was going to be my retirement tour i was getting out no matter what and uh the detailer you know who's a buddy of mine told me he said hey man i'll i know you're going to retire no matter what i'll put you in the station sar up here and you can retire out of Station SAR and stay in Fallon, and, I, and it was perfect. And I, so I accepted that position up at SAR, and I did three years on shore duty up here and transitioned to my civilian, you know, endeavor. Um, but the pilot thing came; it was about a year and a half after I retired. Um, when I retired, I didn't want to be near an airfield, an aircraft. I, I didn't want anything to do with aviation. In that way, so, the guy who couldn't who was forcing himself onto the schedule yeah 20 years before <laughs> yep and uh, yeah i had i had about 3000 hours total in the helicopter um i ended with i'd have to go back and look but about 1200 actual combat hours and uh probably 20 uh, we always flew like about 2500 mbg hours and and uh at that point, I retired. I was like, okay, I just, I need a break. I had never had a shore duty that was non-flying. So I was always in the aircraft, always flying. I never had a break. So I retired and, and I said, I'm, I'm done with aviation. You know, if I, if I ever had a helicopter, if I had enough money to buy a helicopter, all I would do is put it in the middle of the flight line and blow it up because I'm tired of them. <laughs> and it was kind of odd because I went over to the small airport here a year and a half later after I retired just to get some aviation fuel, you know, some higher octane fuel for my hot rod. And I started talking to the guys at the airport and, and I'm like, yeah, I'm retired Navy. And I, I touched on the fact that I was a helicopter crewman. I didn't tell them everything, you know, about me, but they're like, oh yeah, we do flight instruction here. And I was like, oh, no kidding. I said, well, how do you go about getting, you know, flight instruction here and how much is it? And he's like, well, you put your name on this list right here. This is Fallon. You know, the FBO is, you know, like 10 by 10 and from World War II era. And he's like, well, you just put your name on this list and show up and go fly. And I was like, that is way too easy, you know, because mm -hmm. in the military, you know, flight planning with a flight schedule starts way months in advance. You know, you have a long range training plan. And I'm like, you, I'm like talking to this guy. And I said, you can fly tomorrow like if i put my name right here i can go and fly in this aircraft tomorrow he's like yeah no problem so so i did it i was like you know kind of being a you know skeptical i put my name on the list for eight o'clock the next morning and i show up and and next thing you know i'm starting my fixed wing pilot license that's cool i love that so you've like so you i mean obviously you've loved fallon i mean we i know that now but like you love you fell in love with Fallon while you were up here, right? Was I did, yeah. Because yeah, Fallon's a unique place. They say that they drag them in kicking and screaming, and then they drag them out kicking and screaming. Yeah, like that's like the saying of here in Fallon. So, um, 
one of the questions I normally ask, I've got sort of two closing questions and they're kind of a little bit more sort of tongue in cheek is one, if you were going to go to a desert island, um, but still be able to perform, you know, tactically or whatever in your role what would they be but i guess helicopter crewman i'm not really sure how that looks but if you were to be put down off an aircraft what would you take to a desert island and and then my second question would be is normally like hey what coffee do you drink like what whiskey do you mm -hmm. drink those kind of things but what's kind of cool in your situation is you came out of the military and opened the grid and now that's growing into something else so i guess yeah. let's talk a little bit about that yeah and my, I, I want to say my the last six months of my active duty you know career I was wondering what I was going to do to transition into the civilian world and you know my wife Tiffany and I had talked about doing our own thing because she was at the end of her career as a teacher and I had talked about doing a small little brew pub you know maybe just working it on our own and and retiring and she got into real estate, which, you know, turned out it was working really good for us. And we're like, okay, well, let's, I'm going to retire from the military. You retire from teaching and do real estate. I'll get my pension. Ultimately, we're good with that, you know, and then let's do this endeavor where we work together and, and start our own business. And we work the bar on our own and, you know, get, to, you know, kind of relax with it. Well, the first place that we looked at was a very small place and it would have fit what we had planned on doing with a small bar and running it on our own, a little mom and pop deal with our friends stopping by at night. Yep. You know, that, that transitioned into purchasing a, a property that was 7,000 square feet and had a huge kitchen and a restaurant and a huge bar. And, and that, that ended up, you know, taking us into what we have today, you know, the grid brew pub restaurant. And, and we've got 40, about 45 employees right now. So, and uh, we were one of the only bigger restaurants in Fallon now. And, and it took off, you know, we made it through COVID and now I'm actually sitting in the office of our, uh, our new venture, which is the market, the grid market and brewery. So we've gotten into you know, we're putting a poke bowl in, we've got three retail spots that we are leasing out. So we'll have a whiskey and wine shop, poke bowl, a clothing store, a home decor. And we're also going to have another bar in the, in the back with a brewery to where we're going to brew our own beer. That's wild. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess the, the favorite beer is going to be the grid blonde, but almost, I mean, if anyone knows Fallon or has been to Fallon, they know the grid now. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It sits so synonymous with the town. You know, if you're here, TDY, you know, for a air wing or you're, you're based here, you know, everybody knows it. And it's going to be so cool that, you know, you're going to have that, that larger space. And I, I do love, I mean, I, I think we talked about it um, when we were you know, running the RTO that's almost a year ago now yeah. but, uh, about the name, because again, the grid, it's so, you know, it's so aviator, it's so JTAC, it's so everything. And like we, uh, 
I don't know. I think I might mention this to you, but we've bombed the grid a few times in training. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so like when we're operating overhead Fallon, it's like, well, I know the grid reference for the grid because yeah. obviously we've used it um, in our training. And what was it that made you pick that? Was it specifically just something from the military or, or what was it? We were looking to do something associated with the military, but something that also encompassed what we do, you know, on our in our personal lives and we were sitting you know discussing what the name would be and and i wanted it to be subtle i didn't want it to be overwhelmingly military you know because fallon is a unique place where you've got you've got you know military and you also have that local contingent of you know agriculture with farming and you know and some of the other industry that's here so you have two opposite ends of the spectrum that you have to cater, you know, kind of cater to. And we, uh, we were talking about, you know, what I did as a gunner and then what I did in the military and, you know, what we did on our personal lives with, you know, we used to race go-karts and, you know, Fallon is very much off the grid and in its own little world here. And the, you know, that the grid just kept coming up. So we were talking about that, you know, the grid from a military aspect with MGRS, you know, that's where it came from, you know, military grid reference system. And you understand that really well. It's from the ground, from the JTAC to the aircraft, you're always saying, what's your grid, send your grid, push the grid, you know, that's a common, you know, verbiage used between the ground and the air, you know, to get positions, you know, that you're actually going to go infill to or strike or whatever it may be. And then it, when we were racing go-karts, you would have to grid up. So we're at the go-kart track and it's like, okay, you know, whatever class to the B grid, to the A grid. And that was coming up in that portion of our life. And then Fallon being kind of on the grid, off the grid, it was, uh, it encompasses Fallon, you know, in our life and in our professions. And I guess it, we didn't realize it until we said it, you know, four or five times within each aspect of our life. And then we're like the grid. It's just the grid. And then that military contingent, we were able to put our, our actual MGRS in part of our branding. Yeah. And it works out really well because it, and I used, you know, uh, it, it, you didn't want to get too big, you know, so it's not like we could do, you know, like a six, six digit grid, you know, make the branding too long because our marketing expert was like, you can't use that. Yeah, I got it down to a meter, but that's too long. So we had to make it, you know, about a hundred meter grid. Yeah. And that transitioned into the new building because we used the new grid for this building as part of our branding for it. That's cool. I love that. Yeah. I mean, I've sat, you know, if anyone sat in the bar, you know, when you look up behind the bar on the, the chalk board that's behind the bar, you know, it's got the, the thing and the, the, the MGRS overlay on it and the grid written up on there. I think that's super cool. I love the fact that you've put that on the new one as well. So I'll have to have to bomb that a few times now. Yeah, that'd be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, cool, dude. If you had like any closing thoughts or anything you want to push out there to the sort of the wider community, you know, to sort of wrap it up in your sort of final thoughts, what would they be? I would say, you know, the like you were talking about earlier, you know, everybody everybody loves a good war, you know, everybody wants to go operate. I would, you know, if I could give some of the biggest, I like to go, you know, think big, 
and make and, and make one statement that is huge that will affect everybody all the way down to the most minutia, you know, uh, you know, aspect of of the military work being able to work together. You know, and we we grew over years when it came to taking the aircraft and incorporating the ground contingent in, in a, into a, a seamless, cohesive unit. You know, we went from a squadron, then we got into, you know, a bigger squadron with Army, Air Force, and Navy all in one. Then we integrated the whole ground unit, and we all started doing missions together every day. So we all became really close, and, and uh, you wouldn't be able to tell helicopter guy from a ground guy from wherever sitting in a, you know an a and b a mission brief and that gets lost when there's no war mm. you know you 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 have to continue to create those relationships because you don't want to have to relearn them you don't want to recreate those bonds early on in the in the beginning stages of war you have to create that stuff in training you know so try to create personal relationships with, with the units and, and that you're gonna be working with if you think of how you're gonna employ yourselves in a combat situation. Because yeah, the TTPs are there, the tactics are there, you can go do your mission, but that personal integration is what really makes it work. And we saw that long-term because we developed it. And we were always able to say, yep, we're willing to learn, we're gonna adapt, we can change, we can, we can make this work. Yeah, you know, the, the growing pains are, are big at the beginning. And I, I, I guess big picture, you know, cohesiveness across, you know, the multinational, you know, aspect, because, you know, you know, there was a time when, when, you know, you had, you had to do a mission with, you know, a counterpart from that country. Otherwise you couldn't go do it. It was, it was just kind of a transition in the war where you find yourself working with, the ground units from a different country and and uh, you had to be cohesive and, and learn to adapt and and make it all work i guess you know cohesiveness across the militaries in general you know, creating those personal bonds and relationships that will carry over into a you know a, a real world scenario yeah it's an important message because sometimes it gets lost i think there's some um aspects of like we haven't done it so why do we why are we still like we haven't done that and the further you get away from you know the de the deployments or whatever you want to call them the war um these things start to get poo-pooed it's like oh yeah we don't yeah. do that we don't do that anymore and you're like the loss of that bond that 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 small conduit of communication between that unit and that unit and that nation and that nation and you can start to chip away at those very quickly mm -hmm. uh, from one very simple decision like we're not going to do this two-week training cycle that we've done for the last 10 years because right. we don't we don't see where it fits in and you cut that out and you drop three units and you drop two countries yeah. that you that only come for that window mm -hmm. and they don't and they don't know why you did it in they, they kind of take it a little bit personally almost. Yeah. Uh, they're like, yeah. why were we, why are we cut out? Um, and one decision in a meeting that doesn't have a background, you know, can be um, detrimental. So if anyone's listening <laughs> in a decision-making uh, position, just be careful what you cut, you know, and maybe speak to the, get to the ground truth before you make a, an aggressive decision right. to remove something. Well, 
I appreciate you coming on, man. Um, Thank you for having me. And hopefully we get to hang out here soon. I know you're a busy, busy man with all these new endeavors. But hopefully catch up with you personally soon. Yeah, for sure. We'll have a beer. <laughs> Thank you, and I appreciate you taking the time to listen. All our podcasts sit on the Nine Foot Night Killer Collective, Soul Feed, Forge Not Made, and the JTAP podcast. Take some time, maybe listen to one of the other podcast series that you're not listening to and give us your feedback. All these things only happen because of the Nine Foot Night Killer community and we really appreciate them. Thank you everybody for listening. I just want to say that we couldn't bring you anything on this platform if it wasn't for Nine Foot Night Killers um, and all the products that they sell um, and all the fitness programs and coffee, etc. that they put out. So go ahead and head over to 9fnk.life and uh, see if you can pick up something you like.